Hi, my name is Jason Velasco, and I'm one of the advisors at the eDiscovery Advisory Team. You know, I've always had a curious nature around all kinds of topics, so we created that this video series to fulfill that curious nature of mine. I hope to share the interesting people that cross my paths and share their stories. We may talk about legal technology, e-discovery, infogub topics, or we may find a whole new path together. You'll never know what you'll get here at Out of Curiosity. So let me introduce you to our first guest uh, for our Out of Curiosity Day, which is Jason Thompson, which I'll refer to as JT. So JT, how are you doing today? Yeah, very well. Thanks for speaking to me. You're welcome. Well, I'm really excited. I know we've been working and we've known each other for quite some time. So first and foremost, uh, give us a little bit of background about who you are and what you've been doing and how you got to where you're at today. So let's start out where you came from. Yeah, I'm, I'm from South Africa originally. Um, I grew up in and around data. My mom was uh, a person who was um, partnering with uh, ENY and a couple of different firms. So I, I literally grew up around filing cabinets and did the, the whole transition to digital um, alongside her. Um, took my first laptop apart, which was an old compact square box, uh, which is not really a laptop, but more portable, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, and I moved on from there. After after I did that, she was angry enough with me to actually send me into IBM, and I started out there uh, building computers for them. And uh, over the years, seeing how the analog has transitioned to digital um, just irritates me that we get more and more of a mess all the time. So headfirst into the into the data realm and, uh, and always been looking for different ways of indexing, um, knowledge management, and that led me down into information governance. <clears throat> and uh, many e-discovery cases over the years and trying to find solutions for different things. That's, uh, that's my, my basis. So, so what kind of messes do you see or have seen? Can you give me some examples? Well, I think you always see the mess coming in when you open up data. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, at any time when people say we have unlimited data or storage prices drop and, uh, and you tell your employees about it, they're going to store everything there. So, um, we've had some places where they implement a, a new data source and that data source is full within uh, three or four weeks. Um, and my job at the beginning was to go in and actually scan these sources. And we found, let's say, a lot of questionable material. Um, <laughs> one of those situations, very high person in business was uh, telling us, if you find anything that's questionable, we're going to fire those people straight away. Um, and found out that a lot of the stuff was coming up from the, the higher management area. <laughs> <laughs> which was way back when, right? So Position heal thyself, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I mean, data is always interesting. Data tells you stories about, about organizations, about mm -hmm. how they organize themselves to move forward. We've had a lot of view about um, organizational process and how to make that better. Um, but a lot of the time, the, the, the uh, focus was not on the, the data itself, um, which is the output, what people right. are using. Well, that's interesting. So, and, and I know that you, you know, one of the reasons that we've been working together over the last few years is because you've had some pretty deep in-house experience. So, I mean, you said, you know, what kind of, what kind of companies have you worked for? And give me an example of some of the type of uh, uh, um, uh, positions you've held over the last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, I've been lucky enough over, over my, my 20 years of experience to, to work in almost every vertical. And I don't think there's anything that I haven't worked in. Um, some of my most exciting positions within the, the defense side, within policing, within um, pharmaceuticals, I can, I can carry on, um, automotive, um, and then banking. Uh, I moved to Switzerland. I met my wife on an aeroplane. Um, <laughs> and then, Where were you guys going to? <laughs> it was between London and, and Switzerland. That's and a quick flight. I was flight, supposed to be right? here for, yeah, exactly, an hour, an hour. <laughs> and it worked somehow. <laughs> 
So yeah, I uh, moved to, to Switzerland then and uh, over here I've held many different positions, worked within um, the Swiss area, of course, being exposed to data privacy uh, laws um, and then cross-border to try and get things out. Um, and I held a position with UBS, which is a, a Swiss bank, as a director there um, with a team of BAs overseeing uh, the e-discovery area. Right. Okay. What kind of things were you having to deal with? Because I, you know, I've, I've had a lot of experience working on the financial services side, you know, in-house mm-hmm. as well. So what were the kind of things that you were trying to address and trying to solve? I mean, it was it was really a, a big picture over the the whole workflow on how things are being done um, mm-hmm. and the tools that are being used and and the efficiency behind that workflow. Um, also, in change management, uh, this as we know, I mean, there's change every every couple of months within eDiscovery. I think it's starting to slow down a bit now, but let's say the last ten years has been a lot of change. So it was really taking in these pieces, working with legal, trying to translate from IT back to them what to what and how they should be doing things. Um, working with the the e-discovery department, which they had there, um, in order to bring them to a position where their output was matching what legal was was looking for. Um, so it was a really interesting position. Got to to interview almost every person along that whole chain, um, from let's say down in the basement in IT all the way up to to uh, legal counsel and see how they're dealing with things. So I mean, change managers is one of those kind of areas that's always interested me, especially working with you know mid- medium to almost large style style organizations. Um, how have you worked through trying to manage these multiple stakeholders that have very different interests and objectives um, when you're trying to implement something as large as a e-discovery or information governance program? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a huge struggle. It always is. Um, the piece that I find uh, most useful is to lock everybody in the same room together. Hmm. I, had, I had a very interesting uh, scenario at a, um, at a big oil company um, out of the UK. And uh, we sat together and we were trying to work this process for, for quite a while. And, and uh, was meeting with IT, was meeting with business areas, meeting with legal, and each of them had their own different point of view about why they were special and why it should be done in this way. And right. in the end, I actually invited each of them separately to a, a meeting. Um, and they didn't realize they were all in the same meeting. And I closed the door behind them and I said, right, today we're going to go and, and work this process through. Um, and we're not going to leave here until we work the process through. I booked the meeting for four hours. It's a workshop. So let's do it. And there was a bit of, uh, a bit of tension at the beginning, but that quickly melted away and, uh, and we got through it. And everybody, when they're face-to-face, they're able to really come to a solution and really understand the opposing side. And um, that's, that's where I love to be. I love to be the translator between uh, different areas of business and the mediator a lot of the time you need to be as well um, and let and explain in, in their own terms why something should be like this in somebody else's um, world, right? Um, and that's really formed a, a, a large basis in success through through e-discovery processes but and change management, but also through knowledge management. I mean, that's an area that, that really interests me um, is how people communicate with each other to create knowledge intelligently for, for a, a business. Well, let's put a pin in the knowledge management thing, because I do want to get back to it. But I want to stay with that example in terms of once you got people into the room and started accepting, kind of, you know, going through that workshop, can, did they have, was there somebody there that or you know, a couple people there that really felt like there was a success story coming out of this on their own? Did they meet their own objectives? And, mm-hmm. and how did they feel about the process three, six months, 12 months afterwards? It, it was it was the first big success that we had there. Hmm. 
because people people don't realize that there's something happening before them or something happening after them down the process chain. And when you have people in the same room and you start off, in this case, with a, a discovery um, exercise and you say, okay, this is coming out of, out of uh, legal, mm-hmm. you guys are going to make a request, right? Um, this request is based not only from that point in time, but there's something that happened before that. Mm-hmm. You knew that there's a matter already, you knew about the subject. You, you have a lot more context than what somebody downstream does. Right. Um, and talking with them, with other people in the room, the, the rest of IT and business started to understand, okay, hold on, this is not just a request form. There's... There's a huge amount behind this, which we also need to take into account um, and, and react, let's say, um, respectfully when we're trying to deliver on these things. Right? Right. Um, when somebody says, I need to have it now, um, it's not just because he's, he's trying, to be, trying to be difficult. It's because he probably really needs to have it now because there's something that's going to be affected um, in a large way for the business. And what right. is that? And the same thing when you move down the line, right? You, you get to an IT perspective and you ask them to talk through their process and legal suddenly goes, oh, okay, this is not just as e- easy as me asking you to find something and you delivering something to me. There's a huge amount behind it. Where was the person over time? Um, mm-hmm. What is the data source? Uh, is it there? We have to normalize that data. Where are we going to bring it to? You know, the pre-processing. And, and then suddenly legal's eyes get bigger and bigger and, and they see some speciality in, in IT and IT see the specialness from the legal side to say, okay, when we're putting this forward, this is going to end up potentially in a courtroom. So mm. I need to be respectful with how I'm doing things. And this is the reason why they're trying to track exactly what I'm doing every day. They're not just wanting to know what I'm doing, you know, <laughs> it's about the well, I mean, it, it's easy to create bureaucracy for bureaucracy's sake, right? And yes. and in many, you know, I've seen a lot of different programs where people, you know, make the bureaucracy and those toll gates almost impassable mm-hmm. to, because again, they don't want to be responsible. It's kind of like, I, I, you know, let's pass that dollar to someone else and take, have them take the risk. I don't want to take that risk and jeopardize my job. I mean, mm-hmm. did you see the same thing in, in, in your experience working with some of those companies? Yeah, when when they feel like they would step outside of their box and it would be a risk for them to take. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to take a risk if there's a reward on the other side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not always a reward. But um, the, the one thing that really opened my eyes was, was really moving to Switzerland because mm-hmm. the way that people deal here is not as much about climbing a ladder as what I found a lot of the time in the UK and, and in the US. Um, people here really even from a managerial level, operate on very much the same kind of area, right? Which, mm-hmm. which allows open collaboration a lot more. People are not afraid of, of bringing their ideas to the table um, because they're not afraid of losing their position. They know they're going to grow because of the experience they have, not because of a decision they made yesterday or the day after, which, which is very um, refreshing. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's within the global organizations here. Yeah, of course, if you look at Swiss companies in the smaller family business, very different thing, but uh, yeah, that, that was something I, I really enjoyed to find in an organization. We have many different cultures coming together in the same space. Suddenly you have this kind of leveling off of the playing field and, and people are, are allowed or, or allow themselves to be more open. Interesting. So, I mean, I know we started talking about knowledge management because, again, you know, kind of that whole workflow and process is all coming around, you know, finding data, right? Which is, I think, you know, kind of where we all came from, from the discovery side. <laughs> you know, how do you find data? Um and, and one of the great things that has kind of come out of the, you know, the information governance piece is the IGM reference model and in terms of gathering and finding value from data. Um, that I think has always kind of, to me, always been what I would consider knowledge management. You know, how do you know, knowledge management is gathering and figuring out what is the valuable information that we need to maintain. 
I don't know. Would you? I don't know if you would agree with that definition, or what is your perspective on KM? I think. Well, I, I think the, the the major split for me, what you just described, would be more kind of IG um, mm. knowledge management for me. Um, I've done many knowledge management projects and many of them starting at the bottom up. And I, I'm, what I mean by that is looking at a, a giant data set and then doing a scan on it and expecting to wave a magic wand and do some some uh, sorting of that data into categories or, or some other way. Um, and yes, that may give you some of the way forward, but these projects peter out over time, right? The ones that really survive are the ones that start on both both sides and more so from the business side. Mm-hmm. What is that position? Not necessarily what is the person, but what is that position that that person holds? How does that position interact with the other people within that department? How does that department interact with other departments? And if you take it from that point of view, then when you start to scan the data, you have a, a much better idea of what you're looking for in each of those different areas. And really, when you do that that data search and, and retrieval, you're doing that from a departmental point of view or from a person's point of view, right? Um, and knowledge management, again, for me, is not just the fact of finding information um, because we, we can find if we if we go in, in different ways. I mean, I've implemented desktop search, which a lot of the time <laughs> worked out to be also a very bad thing. We want everybody to find things. Yeah, okay, great. Oh, no, now everybody can find too much. <laughs> No. So to, to gauge that level, you really need to start from the business side and you start from the business people and process point um, and then move down to the data after that and, and start to, to create your knowledge circles. Because right. as people get to a team and they create something as a team, um, they add into their own knowledge, um, but they're also giving knowledge back into the business. Hmm. And when they give that knowledge back into the business, somebody else is going to use that down the cycle. And when people start to understand that the quality of what they're giving back onto um, or into the, the knowledge base is going to be used by somebody else. There's suddenly not a fact of trying to force somebody to categorize or to, to add a tag to something. They, they realize that if I do this, I'm adding value. Um, and that, that's trying to step people forward. So from a people point and being able to market knowledge management in an organization is much easier than trying to just create a policy that you're forcing people down a road with, right? Well, it's a pretty huge cultural shift. I mean, that's, I mean, you're trying to take people like, you know, I, I know that when I was doing some work at the financial um, services side on my side, we were forced to tag every single email so we can, yeah. you know, you know, that was just part of their policy. And I was like, <laughs> why, why do I have to tag this stupid thing? Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I understand why. And, you know, cause that's the practice and I, I appreciated it down the road, but I mean, trying to get kind of everyone else to do that. I mean, it seems like a pretty big culture shift. So uh, how do you help someone understand that there's a value to creating knowledge and data hygiene and all those type of things? Mm -hmm. I think technology holds a lot of those answers. Um, If if we look at, let's say, a a knowledge management area or how we deal with data over the the, the last 10, 15 years, you get to this this major change change spot where okay we implemented something new and now we have to change the way everybody works and if you mm-hmm. go into organizations you see layers of these applications on top of each other where people have had to change the way they work over and over and people get tired of it so that's that's one of the things i take into account when we look at knowledge management is how are people reacting today and keeping their front end as stable as possible in how they react we have the power technically to change what's going on in the back end, right? So let's keep a, get a, a folder example. Let's say I'm saving something to a folder all the time. 
Um, and I have a folder structure. If, uh, most people have a kind of folder structure with them. If we can get that department when somebody is onboarded to say, this is our folder structure, this is how we save something, does it matter for them that that is in the cloud or it's on a SAN or it's on a NAS or it's some, well, they don't they? care, right? Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. and, and this is this is really where I try to get knowledge management to within organizations is to say, let's form a base of how people react with things and get their perception of where they're putting things and how they're putting things away. But beyond that, we need to make the system so that if there's a new knowledge management system or new uh, method of storage that comes along, we can switch that out without having this constant change control that, that uh, people have to go through year on year. Yeah, change control seems that's the hard part, right? It's like, oh, now I've got to hold do this and, you know, and now I've got to build a policy and I've got to teach this policy and it's almost draconian, right? I mean, yeah. that's that seems exactly. to be kind of the, the way it's the it's the stick versus the carrot. Yeah. And and people will always default back to what they know. Right. I mean, that's that's us as humans. Right. Which is say, no. back to my C drive. <laughs> back to the C drive again. <laughs> what is this cloud anyway? And where is it going? Is it safe? No, I don't know. Let's put it back on my memory stick, put it in my pockets. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, 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 having known you for a while, and I know you've got a lot of different interests in data. So, um, can I want to switch gears a little bit, and, and uh, let's talk a little bit about kind of your, your, you know, you've been a technologist, and you've looked at building technology over the years. Um, tell me a little bit about how you've intersected this data and knowledge management into kind of a learning, um, learning tool. So tell me a little bit about kind of, I think it's the ProScala, I think it was what, mm -hmm. you're, what, what the tool is called. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, growing up in, in South Africa, there was always a major rift between, between different classes. Um, mm -hmm. And in that, we were, we were kind of sitting in between the whole apartheid thing that was going on. Um, myself and my mom used to go into the, the townships and just do some basic education for people there. Um, if you go into a lot of those townships, very basically, you have a river running through it. People are washing their clothes in the river, not realizing that somebody downstream is going to get their thing. So really basic education to say, okay, well, why don't you get a bucket, take the water out and wash your clothes on the land. Stuff will seep through the, the ground and actually get in the river a bit cleaner. So mm -hmm. very basic things like that, to reading, to other things. So I, I really saw the impact that education has on on people. And that was always my dream to try and, and impact education throughout the world in in, in regions where uh, they have a, a major need, where they don't have the money, they don't have the resource to do that. And I tried different things over the years. We thought about a container system to go put out there. Um, and we, we helped some people get out there and actually do volunteer work. But the problem with that is you get volunteers in, everything gets good, and then volunteers leave. So it kind of went away and I continued down my, my electronic discovery path. And uh, a couple of years ago, three Swiss school teachers walked through my door and said, hey, you know software. And I said, well, I don't know, <laughs> I know, I know legal software and I know things in that area. But they said, well, have a look at what we're doing. And, and he showed me the system that, that he developed himself um, for a school over 10 years, um, really a robust system. And I, I thought, okay, well, this is really nice. It's good. It does something for education. And the one thing that really switched the lights on for me, he said, when we save information to the system, other people are able to gain access to that. So myself as a teacher, I could donate a lesson out um, that other teachers could could do. And that's when the lights came on for me. And I said, that's the biggest issue we have in these places is we don't have teachers. Now, if you can get other teachers to donate high quality lesson material, and we have a system behind that that we can deliver that with, mm -hmm. um, this is going to make a huge difference. And that's exactly what we're doing now. So I invested in that. 
um, and we brought that to iPhone, iPad across devices. And um, then some NGOs in, in uh, South Africa came to me and said, "Well, we'd we'd like to use the system." And, and at first, we were like, "Well, it's it's Africa, you know? I mean, it's a it's a digital system." How they, and they said, "Well, people might live in low cost housing or no housing, but ninety percent of them have smartphones." And we, okay, well. That's something then. So, and and that's what we're doing now. So we we're heading out of the next uh, two years to implement twenty three uh, different villages there, um, and on on track to get into Thailand as well to go and do some things out there. So that's really my my difference maker, hard project in the background. I, I just support them, direct them down the down that road, and uh, use my skill in how to design an interface that I've I've gained over time, and mm -hmm. uh, they use their skill from a teaching aspect, and it, it works out well. Well, that's pretty amazing. That, that's a great story. I mean, and, and you know, it, it, education is so easy to, you know, people just assume that it's there. And, and I mean, it's interesting that your background in South Africa dealing with the apartheid and, and things like that. I mean, it's, you know, it, the United States, we really have, you know, we, we have this, you know, we don't really have a class concept because uh, mm -hmm. everyone's going to be a bazillionaire. Um, but uh, <laughs> if you work hard enough. So, I mean, but you grew up in, in a really a class system with apartheid. I mean, what were the educational differences? How was your experience different from, um, you know, someone else across that river potentially? I mean, people of color through through that that time got hardly any education a lot of the time. I mean, some some areas were, were bringing them in and educating them better. Um, in other places, they really got almost nothing. Um, and that would be, I think, kind of the, the major issue was that for a 30-year period, you have an entire part of the society which wasn't educated very well. Hmm. Um, and the less educated people are, the harder it is to work with them. The more animosity then comes out of that. And that kind of... That, that whole piece rolls around until when when I came out of school and Mandela just came out of uh, of jail um, and that that was for me it was a huge eye opener because through our media it was it was very sheltered we mm. didn't see the big townships of millions and millions of people um, that were living like that um, that was that was all closed off from us from a media aspect uh, mm. so the first times we started seeing that were through the riots and those periods we were like okay so we are the minority. <laughs> Is that really how it is? Right. I mean, we we as as a European um, were within fifteen, maybe highest twenty percent of the whole population, thinking wow. that we were the only ones in the country. This is a huge shocker, um, and uh, I, I never carried over guilt. I think a lot of people carried over some guilt from that period, but I think I was as an English speaking person, I was kind of stuck in between. This whole this whole uh, regime that was going on. So when those doors started opening, um, we started trying to help or trying to do something in there. Um, and when Mandela came out, I mean, can you imagine being locked up for thirty years, being tortured, and going through all of that, coming out, and then saying, actually, everybody should be equal, and uh, hmm. and continuing down. And that was I get I even get goosebumps now. That was that was uh, the most amazing thing that could have happened. Um, and through that, um, it really drew us closer to trying to reconcile the country. And that, that's what it's about. Um, I always said I was just coming over to Europe for six months. Really? <laughs> Been out 12 years. So <laughs> as life goes. All right, right. Uh, that's pretty significant. Make a difference. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I just want to kind of close because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very curious. You've, uh, you've mentioned it in some of our previous conversations. I'm really curious about this. So, mm. 
I, I've seen pictures of your garage on some video streams and you do <laughs> motorcycles. So help me understand what does that fit in and where do you ride those things, man? What, what, do you, what are you doing with those? Well, I mean, Basel in Switzerland is probably one of the best places to own a motorbike. I have hmm. 10 minutes across the border and into Black Forest, which would stretch up probably in the region of about 100 kilometers up of beautiful roads running through beautiful pine forests. <laughs> Not many cars on the on the road. Mm-hmm. I grew up riding bikes and and watching um, watching Paris Dakar and super bikes with my father, and um, that was a dream of mine. Where where this started was, I said to him when I I, I left South Africa, I said one day we're going to ride in Europe. Um, and the first trip that we did was uh, two years ago now, where we we got Africa Twins, which is a, a Honda bike that was used mm-hmm. in Paris Dakar in the nineties, and um, we did a ride together two weeks just on the road, going down through Italy, Corsica and coming back again. And that was, that was supposed to be my thing that I was doing with him. Like every two years we would do it. And unfortunately this year, <laughs> everybody's kind of stuck. Right. So that's what I do. I take old bikes and especially the ones which we were watching on TV and we, I, I build them up and then we ride them, go on outrides every couple of years together. How many bikes do you have now? Um, two. My wife says I'm not allowed to have more bikes than children. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good rule of thumb. Just a very, smart, uh, uh, it's a very smart woman. So, well, JT, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing with us. And, and there's more I'd love to be able to dig into. I'd love to know more about some of your experience with cross border and other things. So maybe oh, we'll have absolutely. another session sometime. If you're okay with that, yeah, let's do. That's awesome. That's great. Well, to again, you. thank you for the time and thank you for you know helping me with uh, saving some of this curiosity that I have in my nature. So, um, <laughs> good. thank you so much. Thanks, Jeffy. Bye-bye. Have a great day.